ಶನ್ನೋ ಮಿತ್ರಶಂ ವರುಣ ಶನ್ನೋಭವತ್ವರ್ಯಮಸ್ಪತಿ ಶನ್ನೋ ವಿಷ್ಣುರುಕ್ರಮ ನಮೋ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮಣೆ ನಮಸ್ತೆ ಪ್ರತ್ಯಕ್ಷ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮಸಿ ಪ್ರತ್ಯಕ್ಷ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮ ವದಿಷ್ಯಾಮಿ ಋತ ವದಿಷ್ಯಾಮಿ ಸತ್ಯಂ ವದಿಷ್ಯಾಮಿ ತನ್ಮಾವದು ತದ್ವಕ್ತಾರಮವದು ಮಾತು ವಕ್ತಾರಂ ಶಾಂತಿಶಾಂತಿಶಾಂತಿ ಸಹನೋ ಭುನಕ್ತು ಸಹ ವೀರ್ಯಂಕರವಾವಹೈ ತೇಜಸ್ವಿನಾವಧೀತಮಸ್ತು ಮಾವಹೈ ಶಾಂತಿಶಾಂತಿಶಾಂತಿಭ್ಯೋಧ್ಯಮೃತಸಂಬೂವ ಸೇಂದ್ರ ಮೇಧಯಸ್ಪೃಣೋ ತಣೋ ಭೂಯಸ ಶರೀರ ಮೇ ವಿಚರ್ಷಣ ಜಿಹ್ವಾ ಮೇ ಮಧುಮತ್ತಮ ಕರ್ಣಾಭ್ಯಾಂಭೂರಿ ವಿಶ್ರುವ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮಣ ಕೋಶಿ ಮೇಧಯಾತ ಮೇ ಗೋಪಾಯ ಶಾಂತಿಶಾಂತಿಶಾಂತಿ ಅಹಂವೃಕ್ಷರೇರಿವ ಕೀರ್ತಿ ಪೃಷ್ಠಂಗಿರೇರಿವ ಊರ್ಧ್ವಪವಿತ್ರೋವಾಜಿನೀವಸ್ವೃತಮಸ್ಮೆ ದ್ರವಿಣಗುಂಸವರ್ಚಸ ಸುಮೇಧಾಮೃತೋಕ್ಷಿತೇತ್ರಿಶಂಕೋರ್ವೇದಾನುವಚನ ಶಾಂತಿಶಾಂತಿಶಾಂತಿ ಪೂರ್ಣಮದೂರ್ಣಮಿದೂರ್ಣಾತ್ಪೂರ್ಣಮುದೇ ಪೂರ್ಣಸ್ಯೂರ್ಣಮಾದಾಯೂರ್ಣಮೇವಶಿಷ್ಯದ ಶಾಂತಿಶಾಂತಿಶಾಂತಿಶ್ರುತಿಸ್ಮೃತಿಪುರಾಣಲಯಂಕರುಣಾಲಯ ನಮಿ ಭಗವತ್ಪಾದಶಂಕರ ಲೋಕಶಂಕರ ಶಂಕರ ಶಂಕರಾಚಾರ್ಯ ಕೇಶವ ಬಾದರಾಯಣ ಸೂತ್ರಭಾಷ್ಯಕೃತ ವಂದೇ ಪಂಥ ಪುನಃ ಪುನಃ ಈಶ್ವರೋ ಗುರುರಾ 
आत्मेरे मूर्ति भेद विभागिने व्योमवत व्याप्त देहाय दक्षिणामूर्त अखंडम सच्चिदानंदम अखंडम सच्चिदानंदम अवांग मनस गोचरम अवांग मनस गोचरम आत्मखिलाधारम आत्मखिलाधारम आश्रय भीष्ट सिद्धये आश्रय भीष्ट सिद्धये अर्थतोप्यद्वयानंदान अर्थतोप्यद्वयानंदान अतीतद्वैतभानग अतीतद्वैत गुरूनाराध्य वेदात गुरूनाराध्य वेदात सारम वक्ष्ये यथामे सारम वक्ष्ये यथामे this chapter was started with the uh, this purpose of discussing what we call the means or the steps to self realization we call the steps to knowledge shravanam mananam nidhyasanam and samadhi these are the four steps not four steps really but this is what constitutes what we call vichara we said it is vichara or inquiry which is the means to knowledge and what does the vichara consist of it consists of these first the shravanam listening which is really the vichara <clears throat> although we use the word shravanam which when translated means hearing actually what is meant there is vichara or inquiry then why do they use the word shravanam hearing instead of vichara inquiry because that vichara or inquiry should be performed in a certain setting therefore that that vichara should not be performed independently but that it should be performed along with the teacher and then alone it would be a vichara or inquiry on the lines of the uh, what the upanishad unfolds so it is really the inquiry on the or deliberation upon the statements of the upanishad because upanishad is a pramanam and therefore a deliberation upon the statement of the upanishad is called vichara and that deliberation can only be done when those statements of the upanishad are unfolded by at the teacher and therefore this what we call setting of shravanam or hearing is the appropriate and proper means that is enjoined for performance purpose of what we call vichara <coughs> and it is shravanam which is the means of knowledge shravanam or this vichara is the means of knowledge that is where the knowledge takes place even if the knowledge doesn't if one feels that knowledge does not take place in a particular setting of sitting before the teacher and that but the very thing that we have heard and as the deliberation goes on in the mind when the meaning becomes clear it is still nothing but the extension of what we call shravanam so shravanam or listening that is performing the vichara in the, along with the teacher upon the statements of the scriptures is the means of knowledge and the knowledge that is gained is to be released from the doubts and vagueness which is done by mananam or reflection with logic and it is said there the purpose of reasoning is not to question what the upanishad says but to understand what the upanishad says that's all that is meant there 
If you question what the eyes say with reference to the color, then you will be nowhere. If you try to understand what the pramanam says, then alone, because it is pramanam. Since Upanishad is pramanam, and what Upanishad says is truth, so that it's a matter of understanding what Upanishad says, rather than how, or questioning what it says. And that was meant by saying that, so Vedanta Anuguna Yuktibhi Anavaratam Anuchintanam. By yukti or the reasoning that is uh, agreeable to Vedanta, that is help, that, that becomes a helpful means to Vedanta, understanding Vedanta, that is called mananam. And, finally, and then nididhyasaram is to overcome what we call the habitual error, the buddhi or the habitual identification of the body, which culminates into what was called samadhi, samadhi or the absorption, which also was twofold, first the cervical samadhi, and the nirvikalpa samadhi. Savikalpa samadhi, when there is an awareness of the self, an awareness of the fact that the knowledge is, and nirvikalpa samadhi, when that awareness also merges or disappears. <coughs> so, nirvikalpa samadhi then would become the ultimate step. And so now in the following section, the author discusses the steps, the means for arriving at or attainment of this nirvikalpa samadhi, means preparation of the mind, simultaneously. Understanding the means for knowledge is only vichara. But still, in order to prepare the mind for vichara, and ultimately for abidance in the knowledge, so it is necessary to have preparation of the mind. Although the very same preparation earlier was stated in the form of adhikaritvam, the qualification, as sadhana chatushtra sampattihi. So what the author is going to now say is already done actually. So Vedantic texts do not separately discuss what is the eightfold yoga. Vedantic texts discuss what we call the sadhana chatushtra sampattihi or the fourfold qualification. Viveka, vairagya, shamadi shatka sampattihi, mumukshutvam. And that includes this Ashtanga Yoga or this eight steps, etc. But even then, the author, since author here presents his samadhi or the absorption, which is not presented as generally the objective of Vedanta anyway, Vedantins always present the knowledge which is more the savikalpa, meaning the knowledge, the awareness that I know, and the need to eliminate the dehadu buddhi or the habitual error, that's all. <coughs> But when Samadhi is presented here as the goal, then the author next presents the different limbs, Anga or the limbs or the steps leading to the Samadhi, which are very helpful because the preparation of the mind, which is, uh, which is uh, described here, is extremely helpful and it should be done in one way or the other, whether we call it the Sadhana Chatushtra Sampatti or Samadhi Shatka Sampatti, mainly. What Vedanta emphasizes is Samadhi Shatka Sampattihi. That sixfold inner wells beginning from Shama. Shama Dama Uparama Titiksha Shraddha Samadhanam. So Shama is the quietude of the mind, meaning make, making the mind free from Ragadveshas. Dama is the uh, control or the mastery over the sense organs. Uparama is a freedom from urge and therefore nat- natural abidance of the mind in the sense organs, which finally leads to samadhanam, 
which samadhanam can be also understood as samadhi, meaning a single-pointedness of the mind. So what we are really seeking is a mind, a learning mind, which is a mind that is focused. So it is not so much the samadhi that is important as far as the Vedantin is concerned, because for Vedantin, important thing is a mind that is a learning mind, <coughs> and mind that enjoys a focus. To learn or to understand the self, to know the self, it is required that the mind should be focused upon the self. And it also should be what we call a learning or understanding mind. Not a mind that is poised to experience something or a mind poised to, you know, to experience the sensation or whatever, but the mind poised to learn or understand. So it's a learning mind. That was jignasa or desire to know is the main qualification here. <clears throat> so keeping that in mind, in light of that alone, we should have to understand these eightfold steps here. And we are discussing because they are mentioned here. And also it is good uh, information for us. And from this, we take whatever we find necessary. So from Yoga Shastra and from Sankhya and from all others, Vedantins do take whatever is necessary or helpful. <coughs> And so, going now to the passage 199 on the page 111. So, what are the sadhanam or upakarakani angani? What are the means which are helpful to arrive at this state of mind, which is an abiding state of mind? Then the anga, either you can say the steps or the limbs which form uh, the different aspects which form, which are culminated into samadhi, are now being stated in the next passage. Tatascha, asya, sushukte. Oh, that we already, I'm sorry, passage 200. The eightfold practice, that's what we want to read actually. Asyangane. Yamaniyama asana pranayama pratyahara dharana dhyana samadhaya Asti angani. Anga actually means a organ or a limb. Just as his body is made of different organs, like the hands and legs and head. So these different organs or limbs are called anga. So this is called ashtanga yoga. This yoga is called ashtanga yoga, which is eight limbs. You can call them eight steps or rather call them eight limbs, which make up the main body. So the main body here or the main thing here is what we call the nirvikalpaka samadhi. Meaning that samadhi devoid of the vikalpa or the self-consciousness or devoid of this awareness of the separation of the known and the known. So that is what we call the angi, that is the, the main uh, goal. And these are eight limbs. So yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana and samadhi. That samadhi means savikalpaka samadhi. These eight are supposed to be the limbs you can call them steps also. <coughs> but steps mean that you give up one and do the other. Here you may continue all of them. So therefore, 
they form the limbs of the ultimate goal, which is Nirvikalpaka Samadhi. All right, then Yama, Niyama. Yama basically, as we will see, are the abstentions for something. To abstain from something is called Yama. That involves what we call a, a, a self-control, basically. Or abstaining from something. Inasmuch as there are such a natural tendencies that human beings have, and of those tendencies which are detrimental to, or which are antagonistic rather, to the very pursuit of the self-knowledge, to abstain from those tendencies, the antagonistic tendencies is what we call yama. It is not that everything about me is wrong or bad, but then whatever aspect of my personality is antagonistic to precisely what I am seeking, then I have, to, uh, I have to deal with that aspect of the personality, those natural tendencies I have to deal with. And for that, we have what we call yama. So, first of all, dosha apanaya. Apanaya means elimination of dosha, or the elimination of any defects in me. And second step is guna adhanam, and also planting specifically the virtues. So what, what are the vices? Withdrawing or abstaining from the vices is the first step. And then, second step is the uh, cultivation of what we call the virtues. <coughs> so, cultivation of virtues or specific practices that are are, are enjoined are called niyama. So, niyama means a rule or niyama means implementation or performance of certain virtues, particular disciplines. The discipline is not a good word, therefore we refrain from using that word. But niyama would be, let us say, certain spiritual practices. So yama is abstaining from those tendencies which are antagonistic to what we are seeking. And niyama is practicing positively those things which are helpful or supporting what we are seeking. <coughs> so dosha apanaya and guna adhanam, removal of dosha, removal of the defects, and guna adhanam, planting of or supplementing it with guna or the virtues. So removal of the dosha or the uh, vices and, and planting the virtues. So yama and niyama. And these are the most important things in fact. As far as the yoga is concerned, these two steps are extremely important. Then comes asana, as I say, postures, bodily posture, asana. Then pranayama, the control of the breath, control of the vital force, you may say. Then pratyahara, self-withdrawal. Then dharana, concentration. Then dhyana, meditation. And samadhi, this savikalpaka samadhi, or the so-called absorption. Absorption where there is this kind of a self-consciousness in that sense. <coughs> Absorption with a distinction. The knower, known and knowledge distinction where they remain, that kind of samadhi is the eighth step. 
So these eight steps make up what we call the final step, which is the nirvikalpaka samadhi, or absorption without the distinction of the knower, known and knowledge. <coughs> And now the author describes one by one these steps briefly. So it is said here, next passage. Tatra Ahimsa Satya Asteya Brahmacharya Aparigraha Yamaha <coughs> Tatra. Now, while talking about these eight steps, the first step is Yama. Yama, as we said, are the abstaining from those tendencies which are naturally found in us, those tendencies which are antagonistic. Imagine that you want to go to north, and if there is a vehicle which always turns towards south, you know, then you have to do something about it. So we want to go in a certain direction of evolving, direction of knowing the self or abiding in the self. So abidance in the self is what is sought here. So any of those tendencies which distract my mind or make the mind extrovert, naturally the mind, ha- those tendencies have one has to overcome. So mind being extrovert, being distracted, running after the external pleasures, or behaving in such a manner that creates a very conflict within. So any behavioral patterns which create a conflict within myself, naturally one has to uh, abstain from those behavioral patterns or abstain from those tendencies. That abstinence is called yama. And this abstinence is here presented in five ways. Five-four abstinence. These five most important tendencies, which are negative tendencies, are identified here. And the Yoga Shastra Sahish Patanjali identifies those five main tendencies and tells us how it is necessary for a spiritual aspirant to stay away from those tendencies or work out those tendencies and become free from them. Then alone we can expect to enjoy what we call an abiding mind, otherwise not. So ahimsa. Ahimsa is what? Non-violence. Vang manakayahi parapira varjanam ahimsa. Simple definition of ahimsa or non-violence is parapira varjanam. Refraining from hurting the others. Para means other living beings. Varjanam, refraining from. Pida, pida means causing pain or suffering. So refraining from causing pain or suffering to other living beings is called ahimsa, simple. And how do we cause pain or suffering to other living beings? Vang, manaha, kayahi. By speech, we can hurt or cause pain to others. By manaha, by the mind, by the thoughts, we can cause pain or suffering to others. Or by bodily actions also, we can cause pain and suffering. Thus, actions are performed by us at three levels. At the level of body, at the level of speech, and at the level of mind also. 
And therefore, at all the three levels, completely refraining from causing pain or injury or suffering to other living beings is called ahimsa or non-violence. According to Sage Patanjali, this one value is enough. They say that the rest of the yama, the other one, satya, etc., are nothing but the purification of this ahimsa. So first value that is recommended is ahimsa or non-violence. And that is the first and the last value. If you practice one value, that is enough. All the rest of the values will automatically come. How? Because ahimsa or non-violence, in order that we refrain from causing pain or suffering to someone else, we should know what is it that causes pain and suffering to them. And therefore, one has to become sensitive to the needs and emotions of other people. And that also requires sensitive to my own needs and emotions, with which also people are not sensitive. So non-violence really is nothing but sensitivity. Just being sensitive. Being sensitive to my own needs, number one. And then I will know also what the needs of others are. But it's possible that others may have needs that are different from my needs. In which case, being sensitive to their needs, being sensitive to their rights, requirements, aspirations, needs, feelings, being sensitive to that, is extremely necessary in order for me to refrain from hurting people. Merely intention is not enough that I don't want to hurt is not enough. Because unintentionally also we wind up hurting people. Because we do things, we say things which are taken as hurtful by other people. Although we don't intend to do that. Which is alright as long as your intention is not to hurt someone, it is fine. But ultimately it will have to grow and we will have to really observe our behavior, observe our actions, observe even our thoughts and see whether they are hurtful or not. And therefore become more and more and more sensitive to the other people, to the living beings around ourselves. And ahimsa, the non-violence, is not really confined to the non-violence to the human beings, which of course the most important non-violence, but in fact it extends to non-violence to all the living beings. And ultimately, it will extend non-violence to everything, everything in the world. And person who has that non-violence, according to Sage Patanjali, is the greatest sage. To the extent that I practice that non-violence, to that extent, my whole personality and the atmosphere around me also becomes such that people automatically feel non-violence even in my own presence. Thus we find in Indian scriptures, illustrations of those sages, that in their hermitage, the non-violence was practiced, you know, they were abiding or establishing non-violence to such an extent, that in their hermitage, even the animals, we used to forget their natural hostility. And such animals as, as, as tiger and deer, you know, they would play together. You know, this is an extreme example of how even the snakes, which are otherwise, you know, uh, all of them is, used to forget the natural hostility. And they used to all abide in non-violence. So this is a, an amazing achievement. So this kind of a potential achievement is there, and for which you to depend upon no one, it is something that we can ourselves cultivate. So this is an extremely important value. 
And unless we cultivate these values positively and deliberately, uh, Vedanta cannot sink into us. I mean, no teaching actually will really have an impact upon us unless we start with from these fundamentals. So these yama and niyama are extremely important things. So says parapida varjanam, as we said, in order to refrain from hurting someone, it is going to require being sensitive to other people. <coughs> and being sensitive to other people is going to require being sensitive to our own selves. What are our needs? So we are always told that what I do not want others to do to me is what others do not want me to do to them. And therefore, we should not do to unto others what we do not want to be done to us. It's a simple rule. And for that, we should know what is it that I do not want to be done to me? What is it that hurts me? And sometimes we are not always sensitive to our own self, meaning that we do not know what hurts us also. And so as we become more and more sensitive to our own selves, we will become sensitive to others also. So performance of action at the level of body, which will hurt people. Well, that generally speaking in civilized society, people don't do. They are, that also they do. Usually in order for ahimsa or non-violence, it will be necessary that a person has to control the anger. The inner violence expresses itself in terms of anger. And anger then expresses itself in terms of actions which are injurious to others. So all that violence takes place, takes place because of anger. And anger takes place because of my demands. So when I demand things, when I demand that the world should be like this, I demand that the people around me should be like this, I demand, you know, various things from others, those, those demands when not met with result into anger, and that anger results into an action which is going to be hurtful action, which is what we call himsa or violence. So violence is caused, violence is an action which is caused because of anger. Anger is that impulse that arises on account of my strong demands or desires. And whenever a demand or desire is not fulfilled, the anger arises. Whether the anger is expressed outwardly or not expressed outwardly. When anger is expressed outwardly, results into an action. When expressed inwardly, it may result into what we call an injurious flow of thoughts, either to the person at whom I am angry, or very often people become angry to themselves, and that anger expresses itself in form of frustration or self-rejection or self-condemnation and then ultimately sadness. So even the sadness that we feel is a build-up of an anger. And so this is, we have to become sensitive to all this. When we become sensitive to our own selves, then we will know. So we don't stop to analyze why I become sad or why there are conflicts in me, why there is anger, as we will, as we will Analyze these things, we'll find how demanding we are. And why am I demanding? Of course, a demand arises from the, the phenomenal insecurity that I feel. Ultimately, himsa is a product of ignorance, understand? Himsa or violence is a product of ignorance. Which ignorance? Ignorance of my own self. So really, that is where the violence begins. To understand the mechanism of violence, we should start from the beginning. And what is the beginning? The self-ignorance. So ignorance is a fundamental violence, which is what the Christians may call sin. However, they understand, but this is what I would understand. 
when they call talk of the sin is nothing but this fundamental violence which is of the nature of ignorance of the self and when i am ignorance of the self ignorant of the self then there is a self rejection or a self denial or a self disowning when i am ignorant of myself as to its true nature that happiness is my nature or security is my own nature not knowing that when i am seeking happiness and security out in the world then there is naturally a self denial or a self disowning so in fact ignorance results into a constant self rejection there is under within everyone else a constant current of self rejection whenever mind is seeking happiness or fulfillment outside that means that it is denying the happiness or fulfillment which is its own nature and denying out of ignorance <coughs> so ignorance is the cause ignorance creates a sense of limitation ignorance creates a sense of lack or a want it creates an insecurity it creates a self denial or a self rejection person wants a support since i don't feel good about myself because i deny myself because i have a lack because there is a self disowning or self condemnation therefore there is a need to feel secure an insecure person wants to feel secure and since i do not see myself as a secure person how can i find security i can find security only when i am supported so when there is a supporting environment then alone i feel secure and when the environment is not supporting i feel insecure meaning the insecurity that i am feeling becomes manifest in an environment that is not supporting the insecurity which i am feeling remains unmanifest in a supporting environment understand as long as ignorance is insecurity is but when that when does that insecurity really become manifest when the environment is hostile or antagonistic or not supporting then that's when the insecurity comes out and therefore when do i get angry i when I, i get angry when i'm insecure and since i do not accept the insecure person the real rejection is of my own self that insecure self but not having the discrimination as to what is it that i'm unhappy about i feel that it is outside situation which is responsible for my insecurity or responsible for that feeling of self that rejection so on account of lack of awake or discrimination the inner insecurity that i am feeling is superimposed upon the outer situation and therefore i demand that the outer situation must be such and such must be supporting me so that i can avoid dealing with my own insecurity <coughs> and therefore i demand from the external environment a what we call a supporting situation and what is it that will support me that which will be in keeping with my raga and dvesha or likes and dislikes so yoga shastra talks about these steps very beautifully ahim avidya asmita raga dvesha and abhinivesha this ignorance then has its extension this way ravidya is ignorance that results in the what we call asmita asmita means the sense of individuality asmita i am so and so that is called asmita so ignorance about the self 
results into this notion, I am so-and-so, the sense of individuality. That creates raga. Raga means a natural attachment for that sense of individuality. When my ego is supported, then I am happy. Ego is not supported, I am not happy. So anything that supports my ego is naturally an object of my like, for which I have attachment or raga. In anything that is hostile to my ego, for that I have dvesha or aversion, and therefore the immediate products of this ahankar or ego is raga and dvesha. For example, when I am identified as the body, then that which is agreeable to the body becomes an object of my like, and that which is disagreeable to the body becomes an object of dislike. When I am identified my ego, then anything that supports my ego becomes an object of like. Anything that is against that, it becomes an object of dislike. So this raga and dvesha or likes and dislikes are natural products of ahankara. Asmita is called. And that brings about a tremendous clinging. This raga dvesha has ultimately become so strong, the tremendous clinging to anything that supports me. This person will want to hang on to something which is supportive. This is called abhinivesha, an extreme clinging to something. So this is how this ignorance slowly extends itself into what we call our day-to-day dealings or day-to-day lives. And therefore this extreme clinging on to there for the sake of my own security and when that is not supported, I feel terribly insecure, and that very insecurity expresses itself as anger. Anger towards others, anger towards the situation. It can be anger towards my own mind, anger towards my own body also. So people who are angry, they are angry towards everybody. People who are demanding, they are demanding from everyone. And so they demand from outside, and they have demands from their own self also. And whenever either myself, or others cannot fulfill that demand, then that very demand uh, gets transformed into what we call anger, and that anger results into ultimately what we call a violent action. If the anger is not checked, anger is there. There is a value called akrodaha. Akrodaha means the restrainment of anger. That anger arises all right, but a value that the anger should not be expressed as action. In that case, at least the external form of violence can be prevented. But where there is a value of expressing what is inside, then if there is an anger inside, I express it because it is my freedom and right, and that very anger will manifest itself in form of some or the other violence. If I am a wild person, physical violence. Not that wild, violence at the level of speech. And not that wild, violence at the level of the thought. But anger will definitely result into one or the other kind of violence if it is supported if it is justified. So really, to stay away from violence is going to require staying away from anger. And staying away from anger is going to require staying away from demands. Staying away from demands is going to require what we call viveka or discrimination. That demands are all products of ignorance. That all these demands are the products of my own inner insecurity. And that inner insecurity is on account of ignorance of the self. So when everything is traced ultimately to the original cause of ignorance, then alone we shall be able to deal with this. That I feel insecure is okay. 
But that nobody is responsible for the insecurity except ignorance. I am also not responsible for the insecurity because I have not created ignorance. Nor is the world responsible for insecurity because they also haven't created. And therefore, nobody is responsible. If I hold somebody responsible for it, then my anger will be directed there. If I hold someone else responsible for my insecurity, then anger is directed there. If I hold myself responsible for that, my anger is directed to myself. I should realize that nobody is responsible. Nobody is responsible for ignorance. That's why it is said ignorance is anirvachaniya. Why is there ignorance? No answer at all. Who is responsible for ignorance? No answer. So ignorance, nobody can blame oneself for being ignorant. I mean, because everybody is born ignorant. So one thing I have not worked for in my life is ignorance. And therefore, one thing for which I should not blame myself is ignorance. And ignorance of self is not something that I can blame myself for. I can at the most blame myself of having known something and still being indifferent about it or inadvertent. Then it's all right. Alasya and pramada. For laziness and for inadvertence perhaps I can blame myself. But I cannot blame myself for being ignorant. So when you see that we are what we are because of ignorance and because of nothing else. And the world and others are what they are because of ignorance and nothing else. Then this tremendous emotion and impulse that we have of retaliation or self-rejection, they can be dealt with properly. So this is how Yoga Shastra psychology would enable us to deal with the things. It's when you blame mother and father and somebody and other and so forth and so on, it's fine. That is also right. But it is right only relatively. Because I was hurt by my parents and I was hurt by my brother. I was hurt by my by the society. Okay. But who are those parents? Same ignorant people. Same hurt people. So ultimately you'll find that the cause can only be traced to ignorance and nothing else. And how can you blame people who are ignorant? Can you blame a blind person? Because a blind person dashes against a wall or dashes into you. You won't blame that person because you know that the person cannot see. He's blind. And so the people who hurt us in the past have been equally blind in terms of being ignorant. They didn't know what they were doing. And therefore, it is all blind people dealing with other blind people and hurting one another. This is what the situation is. And when we realize all this, that anger that we may have or the, uh, the you know, this tendency to blame, we can deal with that. Only by viveka or discrimination. Not by swallowing things, or not by making ourselves believe, but when we can see this, then we will not have... If the anger goes away, then definitely violence also will go away. <clears throat> and ultimately we will come to the positive meaning of the word ahimsa is not only refraining from violence, but then expressing a positive compassion, which you don't have to work for, which is there. Everyone has that compassion. So you don't have to tell Vedanta does not talk about compassion openly or clearly because Vedanta always talks about removal of obstacles which is a problem in our life. Self is always there, everything is there. All these non-violence and all those great qualities are all there because they are the nature of the self. The compassion and kindness and everything is really nothing but my own nature. It is something that, ob- that it obstructs that. What is it that obstructs? This violence obstructs that natural compassion. And as I deal with that violence, 
that compassion which is my nature will become manifest. However, we should know that non-violence is uh, when there is this love and compassion. Then we know that we are non-violent. Non-violence often may be interpreted as being indifferent or not violating or remaining away from things. But real non-violence will culminate into love and compassion. Because non-violence is the nature of the self. See, Atma or the self never violates anything. Never violates anybody. Doesn't oppose anything. Doesn't demand anything. The whole nature is like that. The sun and the moon and the water and the rivers, they don't demand anything. Sun does not say that, I will withdraw my light from this fellow because he's a crook. Because he's a, he is a bad person, therefore my light is not available to him. Oh, the Ganges would say that, I am sorry, I will not remove the dirt from your body because you are a sinner. You know, these kind of things are not there. They never violate anybody. They don't discriminate. So, that is the nature and that is also the nature of the self. That Atma is the self of all, whether it is a sinner or a saint. That's why we find always our gods, the deities are always shown with a pleasantly smiling, gentle smile on the face of all the de- deities, like Dakshinamudi. Always gently smiling, whoever comes there, a sinner comes or a saint comes, that smile or that blessing or the grace is ever available. And that is understand the nature of the self. So self is non-violent because it accommodates everyone. So non-violence will automatically result into what we call accommodation. Because that self is accommodating. It provides us support or substratum to everything and anything. Otherwise there would have been no violence. People ask this question. If God has created the world and if you say that God is the self of all, then why is there violence? Because God doesn't oppose, even doesn't violate that violent person, you might say. He equally supports everything. <clears throat> so ahimsa or non-violence truly is the nature of Atma. And therefore, to the extent that I am non-violent, to that extent I abide in myself, understand? So this one value is the most important value, ahimsa. Of course we can keep on talking about it because it's, it's a very beautiful subject and most relevant. But as you say, tracing this violence to ignorance as students of Vedanta, this is what we have to do. And when I am angry at someone else, I should know that that person also. If someone has really done something wrong to me, or someone has behaved with me in a manner that deserves my anger, then also I should know that that behavior also originates from what we call ignorance. And therefore, when people hurt each other, it is not that they know what they are doing, it is because, that's why Christ would say, they don't know what they are doing because ignorance. So even this hurtful behavior, positively violent behavior, also is a product of, how clearly he must have seen that, to appreciate that even the people who are crucifying him, they don't know what they are doing in as much as they are also ignorant, and therefore their violence and all of this also is a product of ignorance. So they do not know why they are doing this. So as we understand this mechanism, we will have more and more sympathy and more and more compassion even for the people who are positively hostile. If this is so, 
then alone. Because otherwise, our mind is always going to be disturbed. When we entertain this violence, then there are always opportunities for the mind to react. There are millions of places and millions of occasions when I can react when things are not agreeable to me. Or when I feel that people and situations are not agreeable, there are going to be any number of situations. And therefore, that violence which is in there always becomes manifest in different behavioral patterns. And so refraining from violence, and violence expressed at the physical level, violence expressed through my words, and the words which hurt other people, words, insulting words, hurting words, unpleasant words, bitter words, harsh words, all of this is violence at the level of speech, and therefore refraining from that. And of course, the harshness in the words really only manifests the harshness in my mind. The harshness in my personality alone comes out as harshness in words. So it is going to require what we call a tender personality, cultivating of the tender personality or a sweet personality for my words also to become sweet. It's one thing to smile and say sweet words, you know. That doesn't go too long unless that thing is inside. People are trained, professional people are trained always to smile and talk in a certain way. May help you and things like that. But it's one thing to say that is another thing to mean that. And so when we mean all those things, that is how we practice what we call refrainment from violence. And of course, violence at the level of thought also is very important in as much as we are hurting our own self when we maintain or we uh, permit those negative thoughts to, to uh, continue in our mind. We cannot even blame our mind for thinking in a certain way. So if a thought arises, a violent thought arises, that's okay. But when I support that violent thought, and that, when it, that thought builds up, then it is detrimental, that's all. So the thing is, mind itself, just one or two stray thoughts that arise and go away, are not harmful. But when he, only when the thought builds up, then it gathers a certain momentum, and then it becomes harmful. That's why Arjuna says, Chanchalami manah krishna pramati balavadradam This mind is tormenting me. When would the mind torment me? When a thought is allowed to build up. So when we find this negative or hurting thoughts arising in our mind, hurting somebody else, then we should know that, we should know that this is wrong or that this is detrimental to me. And we stop that build up of thoughts, then that violence in the mind also will not build up. Of course, the method that we discuss again and again is called Pratipaksha Bhavana. The Bhavana, the, this whole method of Pratipaksha, of uh, assuming or taking what we call the opposite position. So if the, if the mind is angry at someone because the mind has seen something negative in that person, then make the mind right away see the positive aspect of that person. And then that thought build-up will not take place. So a thought may arise. And how to dissolve that thought? By making the mind see the opposite. If it creates attachment, make the mind see the opposite, then attachment will go. If there is an aversion or anger or jealousy, make the mind see the opposite of what causes jealousy or anger, and that will go. Mm-hmm. 
make the mind free because, as we know, everywhere these op- contrary things are there. Only when I see one aspect of a thing that it creates anger, look at other aspects, it will create compassion. Those things are all there everywhere and making the mind see, that is called Pratipaksha Bhavana. Bhavana means his attitude. And Pratipaksha means the taking the opposite position. <coughs> and all of this has to be constantly done. So this becomes a constant sadhana, moment to moment. And it becomes a spiritual sadhana. Because uh, more free I am from violence, closer I am to myself, more abiding the mind will be. The mind becomes more abiding, more non-violent it is. <coughs> so ahimsa. And then Yoga Shastra talks further about what happens when one gets established in ahimsa and satya and asteya and what achievements one makes. All of those things are also described there. But then uh, these values are even Lord Krishna also gives a great importance to this. Amanitvam, Adambitvam, Ahimsa. So in the 13th chapter, when Lord Krishna talks of the 20 values, of course there the first value is Amanitvam, freedom from pride, Adambitvam, freedom from pretentiousness, and Ahimsa, freedom from violence. <coughs> so, Vang Mah Kayahi Parapira Varjanam Ahimsa. Ahimsa at the level of body is easier. To refrain from hurting somebody by physical action is relatively easy. But to refrain from hurting somebody by our words is more difficult. If every morning we pray, Jihwa me madhumattama. Jihwa means tongue. Madhu, madhu means honey or nectar. Madhumattama. May my tongue be most nectarine. Not nectarine can also be sour here, but nectarine means let my tongue be most sweet, like honey. So let the words of my tongue be like honey. And that is, that's one of the prayers. Jihwa me madhumattama. And so, not harming others by the word, thought and deed is called ahimsa or non-violence. <coughs> of course then, that non-violence extended at the physical level will automatically result into what we call refraining from eating meat and stuff like that. It is obvious, uh, you know, the corollaries of this non-violence. And non-violence also will automatically mean not hurting anything, being alert at everything. Somebody, uh, there was one Mahatma and somebody came to see him. And when that fellow came in there, at the door, he took out his shoes and just threw like that quickly, you know, and it entered. And this, this uh, saint saw that. So he prostrated and I said, before you come, before you proceed further, just go and straighten your shoes properly. See, one shoe is, is just uh, is a reverse. And so it is suffering there. So make it straight. So you take things, you know, I mean, uh, you just treating things roughly, we have to be sensitive to everything. I mean, of course, you don't have to go overboard with it, but still, being sensitive to things. Sensitive to the engine of the car, sensitive to its brakes, sensitive to everything that is created. Everything has been created for a purpose, and accordingly it should be used. Abusing anything then would be a him- himsa or violence. 
abusing the other living beings is violence, of course, a living other, all forms of life, there must be respect, there must be compassion, there must be respect for life, because just as I want to live, every form of life wants to live, and therefore, basic respect for the life, and that will result into my supporting life also. So in the Indian culture also, there's always, uh, in the day-to-day life also, there's always support for the life of other living creatures around. They used to everyday perform a yaga call, a, a ritual called Vaishvadeva. Just before eating food, and they were offering food to other creatures. Even today also, you find orthodox, some of the Brahmins, when they eat their food, first they take out five small little, you know, morsels and keep them outside their plate. And it is meant for other creatures, you know, that is the idea. And so a sensitivity towards the whole life, a person becomes sensitive to the whole creation, which is nothing but Brahma. So Ahimsa is cultivating that sensitivity. We talk too much about our experiences and mind and stuff like that, you know. So much is our attention. But really, we should cultivate attention towards our own sensitivity. Those things are all there, it's a matter of creating sensitivity for them. God is everywhere, everything is Brahman. And just as you require a transistor to be sensitive to the electromagnetic waves in order to listen to that music, and so also, we require that sensitive mind in order to see the Lord. And thus, Ahimsa is that sensitivity. The first and the most important value in the ultimately, as we said, Himsa, the, the first form of Himsa or violence is ignorance. And therefore, person becomes Ahimsaka or non-violent only ultimately when that ignorance also is dispelled. And Lord Krishna also talks of Ahimsa elsewhere in Bhagavad Gita when he says, Atma Pamyena Sarvatra Samam Pashyati Arjuna Sukham Vayadivadukham Sayogi Paramo Mataha. Lord Krishna says, Saha Paramo Yogi Mataha. He is, in my opinion, the most exalted yogi. Who is he? Atma Pamyena Sarvatra Samam Pashyati Arjuna. One who sees the self everywhere. Sukham vayadivadukham, whether in happiness or unhappiness, or pleasure and pain, one always places oneself as the comparison. Sees oneself in there. And that is how he always deals with everything. He is considered to be the greatest yogi. So a person observing this ahimsa, non-violence, is the greatest yogi. In Sanskrit it is said, ahimsa paramodharma. Ahimsa, non-violence, is said to be, paramodharma means, the supreme or the most exalted dharma, most exalted virtue, most exalted way of life. And that ahimsa has been highly emphasized by Gautam Buddha and another teacher in India whose name was Mahavira. He was the, the one who started this uh, the sect called Jains. So Bauddhas and Jains highly emphasized the value of ahimsa or non-violence. Not that it was not to be found in the Vedas, it's very much there. But still at that time the society had become violent in a very peculiar way. That because as the time comes and then the people get divorced from their cultural moorings, and when this teaching is not available in a manner in which people can relate, then there are a lot of misinterpretations and the people who do not understand the things also very often abuse the system. 
So there was a time when there was abuse of the Vedic system that the rituals became predominant and that too the rituals involving the sacrifice of animals and things like that, that became predominant at one point in time and therefore this Buddhism and Jainism came as a protest to the whole thing. Therefore they rejected everything and they presented to people this value of ahimsa or non-violence. The Jains are non-violent to the extreme. They practice non-violence to the extreme. And such an extreme that you will you'll wonder, how can it be even possible? But they practice non-violence to the extreme. Therefore, they want to have, have non-violence as the, uh, you know, le- to the letter. Not only the spirit, but they want to stick to the letter of the word non-violence. So, Ahimsa has received a great deal of attention in India. And interestingly enough, Yoga Shastra also, while talking about yoga or Purusha, Prakriti, Viveka, discrimination between the spirit and matter, the first value that is being said is Ahimsa or non-violence. <coughs> okay, we will continue tomorrow. Om Purnamadav Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachyade Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyade Om Shante Shante Shantihe Shankaram Shankaracharyam Keshavam Badarayanam Sutra Bhashyakrutau Vande Bhagavantau Punaf Punaha Ishvaro Gururatmedi Murti Veda Vibhagine Vyoma Vadvyapta Dehaya Dakshina Murtaye Namaha Om Shantishanti Shantihe Hari Om Shri Guru Namaha Hari Om